Welcome to the reading of the Des Moines Register for Thursday, May 7th, 2020. I'm your reader, Dennis May. Things are changing very quickly, and Iris wants to make sure we provide our listeners with as much information as we can. In order to do that, we've changed our program schedule completely. This schedule will air statewide on all platforms until further notice. We will also include information about resources in your community during each paper. You'll still hear your Des Moines Register each day at 9 a.m., 6 p.m., and 1 a.m. Please listen closely to the following changes for all other newspapers. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. until noon. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m. seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m. seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Midweek Shopping Cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. Recordings of all newspapers will be available on our podcast page. Just go to iowaradioreading.org, click Listen Now, then click Listen to Iris Podcasts. The papers are organized by region. Each paper will be available for seven days. As things continue to change, we'll announce scheduled changes each hour at 56 minutes past the hour going forward. Keep yourself safe, and thank you for listening. And now let's take a look at today's weather. Skies today will be sunny to partly cloudy, and it will be cooler as well, breezy in the afternoon. Tonight will be clear and cold, with the temperatures approaching a record low of 32 set in 1923. Across the area for Des Moines today, a high of 64 with a low of 39, mostly cloudy with a shower, mostly cloudy tonight. On Friday, a high of 54 with a low of 35, cooler with sunshine. Across the state today, mostly cloudy with a shower, winds west 6 to 12 miles per hour. On Friday, sunny to partly cloudy and colder, breezy in the afternoon, winds north-northwest at 10 to 20 miles per hour. Our sunrise today was at 6.04 a.m. and will set at 8.19 p.m. The moonrise is at 8.51 p.m. and will set at 6.26 a.m. And now let's take a look at the first story in today's Des Moines Register. Lee Rood writes, Pandemic puts brakes on planned Polk tax cut. Before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, Polk County supervisors were mulling whether they could lower the county's property tax levy next year. But without millions of dollars coming in from county-owned facilities such as the Prairie Meadows Racetrack and Casino and the Iowa Events Center, both shut down because of COVID-19 pandemic, those leading the state's most populous counties are being forced to budget differently. A $200 million 2021 budget approved Tuesday by the five supervisors keeps the county's levy the same as the 2020 fiscal year that ends in July. It focuses revenue on existing projects and continuing to prop up hard-hit nonprofits trying to serve the county's hungry, mentally ill, and financially destitute. The budget that we're approving is based upon our best guess as to whether we think where we'll end up, Chairman Matt McCoy said but there are a lot of unknowns right now. With many large sporting events, concerts, and conventions canceled at the Wells Fargo Arena and Hy-Vee Hall, the company that runs the Iowa Event Center, Spectrum Management, 
will keep profits from the first quarter of the year to sustain operations in the third quarter. Typically, a portion of the profits from events at the county-owned Iowa Event Center would flow back to the county, but the Event Center will lose about $700,000 to $800,000 in revenues because of cancellations this spring and summer. Chris Connolly, general manager of the Iowa Event Center, said many big acts who were forced to cancel because of the pandemic, such as Elton John, Michael Buble, and Cher, are rescheduling, but not until next year. All sporting events scheduled at the event center for the fiscal year that ends in July have been postponed, but convention business is likely to return in the latter part of the year. We had a very, very strong year last fiscal year, so we're very lucky, Connolly said. We're not going to hit the numbers that we usually hit, but we're not losing a lot of money. Layoffs of 1,130 employees at Prairie Meadows in Altoona, which has been closed since March 16, began Sunday. That also will affect the county's bottom line in 2021. Prairie Meadows CEO Gary Palmer has not announced whether horses will run this year at the racetrack, but that's looking doubtful. As long as these positive COVID-19 numbers keep going up, it doesn't make sense to me, Palmer said. My worst nightmare is reopening and then having to shut down all over again. Some in the horse trade have threatened legal action if they don't get their purse money this year, Palmer acknowledged. Under Iowa law, purses at the racetrack are supposed to be funded by 11% of gross receipts from the previous year's casino gambling. This year, the amount budgeted for 67 days of thoroughbred racing and 26 days of quarter horse racing, as well as a mixed event, was $21.7 million. But Palmer said horsemen come from across the country to race, which poses added health risks. Simulcasting doesn't make sense because other tracks are closed, as is the casino. Even if Governor Kim Reynolds were to reopen the whole state by mid-May, the track and the casino still would not be safe for patrons or workers, Palmer said. Unclear is whether the state will go through a second wave of coronavirus, which experts have said could be worse than the first. We've been called every name there is, plus other things, but this pandemic is not up to me, Palmer said. Prairie Meadows loses roughly $800,000 to $1 million every day it stays closed. Under its agreement with Polk County, it still is required to pay $1.4 million a month in rent. It is also required to give the county 5% of its gross revenue in a profit-sharing agreement, and that margin will be thin heading into next fiscal year. Polk County uses rent payments from Prairie Meadows to make bond payments on existing programs, and the supervisors typically use the gambling proceeds to award community betterment grants, large and small, to a mix of organizations. Many events the county helps fund, such as high school graduation parties, have been canceled. Supervisors plan to use what's left to help the residents hit hardest by the pandemic. They say charitable contributions to nonprofits aiding the county's neediest residents have dried up and many received no stimulus money. Supervisor Robert Brownell said food banks, refugee organizations, and those serving people with disabilities need the county's help. I'm not saying cultural festivals and events aren't important, but we need to prioritize right now, he said. While the county is stretched, it does have reserves and should weather the 2021 fiscal year better than many, he said. Lee Rood's Reader's Watchdog column helps Iowans get answers and accountability from public officials the justice system, businesses, and nonprofits. The latest numbers of COVID-19 in Iowa on Wednesday by the Iowa Department of Public Health 
are 293 new confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the state. 12 additional deaths have been reported. Total confirmed 10,404. Total deaths 219. Total recovered 3,803. Total tested 63,171. Kim Norvell writes, Ingersoll Avenue in line for a three-year, $17 million remodel. A years-long project to beautify and repair a one-mile stretch of Ingersoll Avenue with a focus on pedestrian and bicycle access will include Des Moines' first elevated bike lanes, providing a new type of buffer between cyclists and vehicles. Construction on the three-year, $17 million project, which extends from Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway to 31st Street, kicks off in the next few days. The work will include a total reconstruction of the roadway, new storm sewers, buried overhead utilities, widened sidewalks, upgraded bus stops, new pedestrian crossings, the elevated bike lanes, and landscaping. It's going to be a brand new corridor by the time we're done, said Scott Almeida, senior project engineer with Kirkham Michael, which created design plans for the city. The project is a result of more than 10 years of targeted investment along the corridor, starting in 2009 with its reduction in driving lanes from four to the current three. Four years later, an urban renewal district was established along Ingersoll Avenue to capture and save property taxes on new investment in the area. The district's boundaries stretch from 15th to 43rd Streets and from the Raccoon River to Interstate 235. Since that time, small businesses, the city, and the Avenue's neighborhood group have invested $100 million in the district, says Chris Maggard, the organization's executive director. There's different sizes of investments that have really come online, she said. It's exciting because it's so varied and mostly locally driven. The $17 million project will be paid for with funds from the district account. Des Moines had already identified the Martin Luther King to 31st Street stretch of Ingersoll Avenue as needing a complete roadway reconstruction, meaning all pavement would be ripped up and re-poured to eliminate potholes and deep scarring, said City Planning Administrator Mike Ludwig. Under the city's new transportation policy, Move Des Moines, any new street work also must take into account pedestrians, cyclists, and public transportation, all items addressed under the new Ingersoll Avenue plan. Sidewalks will be wider, allowing pedestrians more room to move along the corridor. Next to the sidewalk will be benches, trees, and other landscaping. Then there's the elevated bike lanes. Instead of the current striped lanes on the roadway, the lanes will be the same height as the sidewalk, separated from vehicle traffic by the curb and spaces for parallel parking. That will provide a 12-foot buffer between cyclists and motorists. Bikers will be in a more friendly, welcoming space that feels safe, and they're not going to feel like they're in traffic, Almeida said. In addition to widened sidewalks, there will be two pedestrian crossings, one at the existing flashing light at 23rd Street and another at 25th Street near Mr. Car Wash. There will be a median in the center of the street that serves as a pedestrian refuge for people crossing, said city engineer Steve Neighbor. The distance for pedestrians to cross is drastically shorter, he said. Other visible changes include bearing the overhead electric lines, adding permeable pavement to the parallel parking spaces to help slow the flow of stormwater, and enhancing bus stops. Underground, Des Moines Waterworks is putting in new water mains, and MidAmerican is running conduit for the possible addition of a fiber-optic network. There's just a multitude of public infrastructure benefits, Ludwig said. 
It's just a very exciting change to get a reconstruct of the whole right-of-way into a very pedestrian and bike-friendly and environmentally friendly new street. Work on the street will be done over three construction seasons, starting this year with the north side of Ingersoll between Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and 24th Street. Ingersoll will remain open to traffic for the entirety of the project. Additional plans are in the works to continue the project west of 31st Street to 42nd Street. Tony Leaves of the Des Moines Register USA Today Network writes, Tracing the virus, experts connect dots on possible COVID-19 exposure. If you or someone in your family tests positive for the coronavirus in Iowa, chances are someone like Sue Boley will be calling you. Boley is a veteran nurse for the Polk County Health Department. She specializes in communicable diseases, and she spends her days talking to people who have been infected with viruses or bacteria or those who were likely exposed. Boley is one of the hundreds of health professionals across Iowa who are performing contact tracing. They try to slow the coronavirus pandemic by identifying people who might be infected and advising them to stay separated from people who aren't. The job description may be a new term to many people, but it is long-standing and vital public health work. The Polk County team is alerted whenever a resident tests positive for the coronavirus. Team members check to make sure the patient has been notified of the results. Then they call the infected person and ask how they're doing and with whom they've had close contact including household members, co-workers, and companions. The contact tracers give advice on how infected or exposed people can stay home safely for up to two weeks. They offer to help set up services such as grocery deliveries, and they share advice on when it might be okay for a patient to venture back out in public without risk infections to others. Boley is one of four Polk County Health Department staff members who regularly contact patients with infectious diseases, such as tuberculosis, salmonella, or E. coli. She's been doing this work for about 25 years. I came during a hepatitis outbreak back in the day, and I just kind of stayed, she said with a laugh. Her team's initial calls with patients or families typically take 30 minutes. Some can last up to an hour if they involve a patient that speaks another language, requiring a three-way call with an interpreter. Contact tracers check in on each household regularly to answer any questions and check on anyone who's ill. The symptoms can worsen. Initially, someone might have what seems to be a mild case, and then they go downhill from there, Boley said. In one recent case, she could hear that a man with the illness was extremely short of breath and was having trouble understanding what she said on the phone. He kept saying how tired he was. She advised him to call 911. Then she quickly called him back to see if he'd done so. He still was struggling to make sense, so she called 911 herself and had him rushed to the hospital. Diane Potter of Cedar Rapids is one of the thousands of Iowans who have received calls from contact tracers this spring. Potter's husband, Larry, was sickened by the coronavirus in late March and diagnosed with COVID-19 on March 27th. A Lynn County Public Health official called their home the next day, which was Saturday. I was especially impressed at how they followed up right after he was tested. Diane Potter said. The woman from the health department asked about their family. Potter told her she and her husband have three teenagers in their household, including two grandchildren they've adopted and a college student who's staying with them. The contact tracer informed Diane Potter that she and the three teens would have to stay in the home for at least 14 days, which is how long it might take them to become ill if they became infected. 
The official said she and the teens wouldn't be tested unless they showed symptoms, because tests were scarce and were being reserved for the most urgent cases. I thought that was okay. Save them for someone like Larry, who really needs to be tested, Potter recalled. The official also asked about Larry's workplace, a credit union. He hadn't been to the office in about a week before illness struck, but the contact tracer said she would talk to people in the business about protecting staff. The two women talked for about 20 minutes. Diane Potter said the conversation helped ease her anxiety about how to handle the situation. Larry Potter's condition plummeted, and he soon was rushed to Cedar Rapids Mercy Medical Center, where he was put on a ventilator. He spent 15 days there and was celebrated as the hospital's first seriously ill COVID-19 patient to be released. No one else in their household became ill. The contact tracers called Diane Potter a few more times during their quarantine. They inquired about her family's welfare and asked if they needed any help staying home. They were very sympathetic. They were like, well, here's my number. If you need anything, call, Diane Potter said. She didn't feel the process was intrusive. They're doing what they can to protect people. Any information we can give them is certainly going to be helpful, she said. I don't know how they keep it up, to be honest. Some public health experts have called for states to dramatically increase the number of contact tracers. They say the nation should test many more residents, including people who don't have COVID-19 symptoms. Then should isolate anyone who comes up positive and track down people who might have had close contact with them. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has said the state is ramping up its contact tracing efforts. The task has been assigned to dozens of staff members from the Departments of Public Health and Human Services, and it is training more than 150 National Guard members to help. Many of the state's contact tracers have been helping rural counties, which have small public health departments. Bigger counties are handling much of the work themselves. In Polk County, Boley's team of four recently added a half-dozen members to help handle the surge in coronavirus cases. So far, they've tracked contacts of more than 700 Polk County residents who have tested positive for the virus. The contact tracers rarely face pushback from the people they advise, Boley said. Most people have been very grateful. They thank us because they're pretty scared at first, she said. They don't try to track down every person whom an infected Iowan might have a fleeting contact with although it's possible to transmit the coronavirus to another person in such circumstances it's not believed to be common if you just walk by someone on the street or down a store aisle that risk is smaller said sam jarvis a johnson county health department administrator who oversees contact tracing some other viruses such as measles are even more contagious than coronavirus for those contact tracers try to find people who were even in the same room as an infected person Jarvis said his department has doubled its contact tracing staff from two to four people. Their goal is to contact patients within 24 hours of receiving a positive test result. Staff members who usually do other duties have volunteered to help. I wouldn't say it's been easy, but the staff has been keeping up with contact tracing needs so far, he said. It's an all-hands-on-deck situation for us right now. Sarah K. LeBlanc writes, Variety Boxes help stores raise profile. Businesses count on six-foot project to catch the public's eye. As business owner Emily Evers knows, the days are difficult. She spent time worrying about the fate of her Ankeny store, the parlor. She cried, and she's convinced herself she will make it through. Now she is focused on helping others in the same situation. With the assistance of friends and fellow business owners in the Des Moines area, Evers came up with a six-foot social project to help as many businesses as possible advertise their shops and their products. 
The six-foot social project is a collaboration between businesses in the Des Moines area and across Iowa to advertise their products while providing samples to customers. On the project's website, customers can choose between three stock boxes, which include a variety of items from different businesses. The boxes are themed, such as a teacher box, a Mother's Day box, and a box for seniors. More than 25 businesses are contributing products to help Evers fill the boxes. And each box, even if its name is the same theme, is different, she said, because not every box gets the same items from the same vendor. With some help, Evers established the project's website in mid-April. Within three days of releasing the first product, a quarantine box, the site was sold out. Since then, Evers has put together several more stock boxes with the help of several businesses. The concept, she said, is to give customers something to feel good about buying because they're supporting several small businesses at once. For businesses, the boxes are an opportunity to advertise to a wide market and give an example of the products they offer. It's to give them a way to market their business and advertise at a very minimal cost, she said. It's an organic advertising possibility. Without spoiling the surprise of opening a new box, Ever said past boxes have included offerings such as sprinkles, koozies, greeting cards, stickers, face masks, prints, certificates, and earrings. Shelley Gibson, who co-owns the Carol Shop Blush Boutique with her daughter Chelsea, said they have contributed cocktail mixes, gift cards, and coupons. She said a former co-worker told her about the idea, and she jumped on the chance for her business to be included. As a small business, you're always working to get your name out there in a different forum, so we thought this was great, she said. More boxes are being added, such as a graduation box that Everest Estimates will be shipped out in late May. Even after lockdown restrictions are eased, she said, she still plans to come up with more boxes and continue the project. Our hope is that this is something we can continue to grow, she said. From the Metro in Iowa, Nick Coltrane writes, Grenolds praises food supply chain touts workforce's efforts to Trump. Governor Kim Reynolds met with President Donald Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, and U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue in Washington on Wednesday to discuss the state's response to the coronavirus, outbreaks at meatpacking plants, and viruses' effects on the food supply. One of the great stories of the coronavirus outbreak has been that our food supply has continued to work every day, from the field to the fork from the grocers to the meat processors, Penn said. While the officials at the White House meeting acknowledged the coronavirus interrupted normal supply chains, Purdue predicted the food supply would be back at full capacity within 10 days. At the White House, Reynolds noted the meatpacking plants in Iowa had outbreaks of the virus which shut down production. The Reynolds administration announced Tuesday that more than 1,600 workers at four Iowa meatpacking plants had tested positive for the coronavirus. Those figures included more than 730 positive cases at Tyson Pork Processing Plant in Perry, but the governor said at the White House the Perry plant was still operating at 60% capacity. We'll have most of our facilities up and going, and so as we continue to keep them up and processing, we're going to hopefully prevent a really sorry situation where we're euthanizing some of our protein supply and really impacting the food supply, not just across the country but throughout the world. And so this is critical infrastructure is an essential workforce, Reynolds said. Reynolds said the factories have been instituting protective measures, including plastic partitions requiring personal protective equipment such as masks and screening employees to protect the workforce and keep the country fed. On Wednesday, the Tyson plant in Waterloo, where at least 444 workers have tested positive, reopened with new protective measures. 
These are their teammates. This is an essential workforce, Reynolds said. They know how important it is to take care of their workforce. A big part of it was providing them the confidence to go back into the facility knowing they either tested positive and recovered or were on a shift with other employees who tested negative. Workers and the unions that represent them have claimed the meatpacking companies did not act quickly enough to stop the spread of the virus, but they have also said they've appreciated the steps plant owners have made of late, asked if sufficient steps are being taken to protect workers given the outbreaks at meatpacking plants. Pence said, quote, our objective is two equal goals. Number one is the safety and health of the workforce in our meat processing plants. And two, ensure their strength in our food supply in getting people back to work. End quote. An easel between Reynolds and Trump on Wednesday read that more than 100 million gloves, 4.46 million N95 respirators and procedural masks, 1.18 million gowns, and 117,000 face shields had been delivered to Iowa through the federal government and coordinated public-private partnerships. Reynolds recently allowed many businesses to resume operations as such personal protective equipment has become less scarce. On Wednesday, Reynolds announced she will allow dental services to resume and campgrounds, drive-in theaters, tanning facilities, and other businesses to reopen statewide beginning Friday if they meet certain requirements. Earlier this month, she lifted many restrictions in 77 of the state's 99 counties. Iowa has also been working to ramp up its virus testing, particularly at packing plants and nursing homes, which have dealt with outbreaks of the infection. The day Reynolds announced her White House trip, Iowa topped a grim milestone. More than 10,000 confirmed cases of the new coronavirus and more than 200 dead from COVID-19, the respiratory illness it causes. On Wednesday, the Iowa Department of Public Health reported another 293 positive tests and 12 more deaths, bringing the respective totals to 10,404 and 219. On Wednesday, Trump said the amount of testing in the country hurts the perception of how far the virus is spreading. In a way, by doing all this testing, we make ourselves look bad. We're going to have more cases because of the increased testing, Trump said. In another article from Lee Rude, she writes, The IRS seeks return of stimulus sent to dead. Millions of Americans teetering on the economic edge because of the coronavirus pandemic are still waiting for the $1,200 stimulus checks approved by Congress on March 27. Others, no one knows yet how many, were sent the checks, but will never spend the money. That's because they're dead. August Luthens, a Des Moines attorney, said his firm received a check this month by mail for a client in Colfax who died in August of 2018. There have been scores of similar reports across the country involving taxpayers who died within the last two years. I'm sure it's easy to make a mistake, or lots of mistakes, Luthens said. I'm just saying there's a hell of a lot of money being wasted. President Donald Trump has said the number of stimulus checks the U.S. Treasury has sent to dead Americans in the rush to provide relief is tiny, and he has vowed the government will recoup the funds. But if the Treasury sent $1,200 to each of the people who died in the U.S. in just one year, the amount would surpass more than $3 billion. Mortality data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention suggested. Until this week, the Internal Revenue Service had failed to issue any guidance on what people should do. But in an email Wednesday to U.S. Representative Cindy Axney, Democrat from Iowa, and others in Congress, the IRS Legislative Affairs Division said payments must be returned unless the payment was made to joint filers and one spouse had not died before the receipt. 
The Social Security Administration keeps tracks of U.S. deaths, but some experts have said it would have taken weeks for the IRS to cross-reference would-be recipients with those in that database before mailing checks. In a hurry to prime the faltering economy, the IRS sped up payments using existing returns on file, issuing payments to almost 90 million people by the end of April. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin told news outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, that checks sent to deceased Americans needed to be returned by their heirs. He also said the government would be able to track checks sent to deceased people. But others questioned whether that was true since the government made the same mistake when it sent out stimulus checks during the Great Recession of 2007 and 2009 and failed to fix the problem. Nina Olson, executive director of the Center for Taxpayer Rights in Washington and a former taxpayer advocate for the IRS, told the AARP that the CARES Act that authorizes payments passed by Congress March 27th and signed by Trump didn't forbid the deceased from receiving them or outline ways to claw back money. With roughly 20% of Americans out of work, Congress has reached an impasse as to whether to provide additional stimulus relief. Ian Mariana, a spokesperson for AXNE, said the IRS new guidance tells those in receipt of payments to estates of deceased Americans that they need to return the checks or, in the case of direct deposits, return the money via check or money order. AXNE's office had been involved in the issue, Mariana said, because of difficulties constituents have experienced getting answers about their stimulus money from the IRS through the online portals it created. Axney had called for the IRS to create a hotline for Americans to check on their stimulus, but that may be difficult until workers can return to their offices and get call centers up and running. The phone issue has been huge, she said. The IRS was literally telling people they just need to find a friend who has internet, but that's not easy in Iowa, and it doesn't make social distancing sense. The IRS lays out no penalties for failing to return the checks. It did not respond to watchdogs' inquiries. Des Moines puts hold on event permits until July. Des Moines will freeze the issuance of permits for events on city property until at least July 1st because of the coronavirus pandemic, a City News release said Tuesday. The action puts another nail in the coffin of summer events planned on city streets as organizers had already opted to put off the gatherings that bring life to downtown as the weather warms. The moratorium will delay the start of the in-person downtown Des Moines Farmers Market and force the postponement or cancellation of the annual Des Moines Art Festival, which was scheduled for June 26th through the 28th in downtown's Western Gateway area. Stephen King, the festival's executive director, said the festival board won't make a decision on delaying or canceling the event until next week at the earliest. It's heartbreaking, he said. I don't think there's any way around it. No permits will be issued for events on city streets or the city's right-of-way during that time, Mayor Frank County said. He noted the significant uptick in COVID-19 cases in Polk County over the past week as justification. From 813 cases to 1,778 as of Tuesday. On Wednesday, Polk County recorded an additional 97 positive cases, according to the state. We're not quite sure when that peak's going to occur, he told the register. Even before the announcements, cancellations and postponements had already begun to pile up. Early in April, the Iowa Asian Alliance announced on Facebook that Celebration, its signature food and cultural event held in the Western Gateway, would be postponed past its late May date. We understand there is a possibility the event may be canceled altogether, the Alliance wrote. However, we are still hopeful to host an event of some scale to continue to celebrate our Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander communities. 
Even though it was scheduled for late July, organizers of the Italian Heritage Festival of Iowa decided to cancel their event and focus on planning a post-coronavirus festival. The Des Moines Music Coalition also opted to cancel its annual 8035 Music Festival, which was planned for July 10th and 11th. The city also elected to extend the closure of city administrative buildings, including City Hall, to June 15th. They initially closed on March 17th. On Saturday, farmers market organizers rang in their first virtual market online, a temporary replacement for the real thing. Last week, county had envisioned a possible return of the farmers market at an unspecified date with fewer people and exclusively produce vendors. The art festival features 180 artists. So far, about 600 similar events around the country have been canceled because of the pandemic, King said. It's had a devastating effect on artists who depend on the festivals for income. This is what they rely on, he said. County said he wants small businesses and entrepreneurs to succeed, but he's charged with the safety of Des Moines employees and residents. Staying alive is the most important thing, he said. Metro Cities Utilizing Coronavirus Block Grants Des Moines and West Des Moines are redistributing hundreds of thousands of dollars in federal block grants to benefit local businesses, hunger, and housing needs. The Community Development Block Grant Coronavirus Program is part of the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act and distributed by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to eligible cities with at least 50,000 residents. Des Moines officials secured $2.2 million from the program. The capital city plans to put $750,000 of that into a Small Business Assistance Program, which launched Tuesday and is led by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. Several metro cities are making their own contributions to that relief effort, with Des Moines giving another half million from its coffers. From the block grant, the city council also plans to spend nearly $700,000 on rent and mortgage relief, nearly $500,000 on administrative costs, and $350,000 on an emergency food distribution program. West Des Moines is getting more than $192,000 from HUD, most of it which is planned for use for rent, mortgage, and utilities assistance for low-income people directly affected by COVID-19. The goal of these funds is to provide relief from some of the financial stress this pandemic has put on our residents who are struggling to make ends meet, West Des Moines Mayor Steve Geyer said in a news release Tuesday. While Ankeny's population makes it eligible for the program, the city chose not to participate in the entitlement program, city spokeswoman Amy Baker said. Des Moines Emergency Food Distribution Program would allow local restaurants to prepare hot meals that would then be distributed in low- to moderate-income areas. Council members said last week that food is a pressing need during the pandemic. Des Moines will also use $1.1 million in Emergency Solutions Grant funding from HUD, most of it, $964,000, going to homeless prevention and rapid rehousing. City Manager Scott Sanders said last week that the funding will help house homeless people in hotels where they can hopefully be protected from the virus. Vice President Pence to visit Des Moines to discuss COVID-19 Vice President Mike Pence will travel to Des Moines on Friday to participate in discussions related to the coronavirus pandemic. According to a news release, Pence will meet with faith leaders to discuss reopening religious services to the public. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, announced last week she would lift restrictions on religious gatherings and allow services to be held across the state as long as they observe social distancing guidelines and increase sanitation efforts. Pence also will visit hy headquarters to hold a roundtable discussion about securing the nation's food supply. 
The company, which is based in West Des Moines, announced Tuesday that it will impose sales limits on meat products at its stores. In a news release, the company cited worker shortages at meatpacking plants and increased demand. Iowa is home to multiple meatpacking plants that have been hit hard by the coronavirus, with outbreaks prompting closures and disrupting the nation's food supply chain. President Donald Trump signed an executive order that said meat processing plants are part of the nation's critical infrastructure. Pence will return to Washington, D.C. on Friday evening. Separately, Reynolds said Tuesday she would travel to meet with the president and the vice president at the White House this week. I'm going to give them an update on how we're doing in Iowa, Reynolds said at her daily news conference Tuesday. She said she would tell the nation's leaders how the state is using testing and contact tracing and how it is working with meatpacking plants to try to counter deadly outbreaks. And Ankeny's Farmer's Market pushes back its opening. Ankeny's Farmer's Market is delaying its opening this year because of safety concerns surrounding COVID-19. Governor Kim Reynolds announced last week that farmer's markets could reopen under some restrictions. Health organizations and government agencies advise against gatherings of over 10 people to prevent spreading the novel coronavirus disease. As of Monday, almost 10,000 Iowans have been diagnosed with COVID-19 in the past two months. Some farmers' markets, including Des Moines' popular event, are exploring alternatives, like hosting virtual events to make up their usual in-person gatherings. Uptown Ankeny Association, which puts on the weekly Uptown Ankeny Farmers' Market, said it would push back the opening date for the market, which was originally set to open May 16th. The organization said it is hoping to open the market in June, but that it is getting feedback on how to most safely operate the market. Per new guidelines, our market will look a little different when it opens, with social distancing measures in place, limited vendors, etc., Uptown Ankeny Association wrote in a social media update. Tyson will reopen its Waterloo Port Processing Plant Thursday. Tyson Food plans to restart its Waterloo Port Processing Plant Thursday with limited production after closing it for two weeks, as hundreds of workers tested positive for COVID-19. The challenge for Tyson and other manufacturers reopening meatpacking plants in the Midwest will be regaining workers' trust that the facilities are safe to work in, said Waterloo Mayor Quentin Hart. Workers need to see the safety measures put in place, Hart said. The state said Tuesday that 444 workers at the Waterloo plant, which employs about 2,800, had tested positive for COVID-19. Altogether, 1,653 meatpacking plant workers in Iowa have tested positive for the coronavirus, the Iowa Department of Health said. Blackhawk County, where Waterloo is located, reported Wednesday that 33 more residents had tested positive for COVID-19, pushing the county's total to 1,603. Twenty people there have died from the disease. The Waterloo plant, Tyson's largest, processes about 19,500 hogs a day. That's around 3.9% of the U.S. pork processing capacity. The meatpacking industry has been under pressure to keep plants operating, even as COVID-19 has spread among its workforce. Agricultural officials have said Iowa pork producers face euthanizing thousands of pigs as animals back up on farms and can't be moved to meatpacking plants. Even with the Waterloo-Tyson plant slowly coming online, as well as massive plants across Iowa's borders in South Dakota and Minnesota, the country still has lost about 38% of its pork processing capacity, said Stephen Meyer, an economist at Kearns & Associates in Ames. Costco, Ivy, and Walmart Sam's Clubs say they are limiting how much meat customers could buy, given reduced supplies as processing plants have slowed or closed. 
Last week, President Donald Trump signed an executive order directing the U.S. Department of Agriculture to ensure a reliable supply of meat for Americans. U.S. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue sent letters to state governors and meatpacking companies Wednesday, saying the agency expects state and local officials to work with these critical meat processing facilities to maintain operational status while protecting the health of their employees. Tyson said Wednesday the measures it's taken meet or exceed safety guidance from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the U.S. Department of Labor. Tyson said all team members returning to work have tested positive for COVID-19, and any team member who has tested positive will remain on sick leave until released by health officials to return to work. The company offered employee tours of the plant Wednesday. Hard and other city, county, and union leaders toured the plant over the past week. Tyson said it partnered with a medical services company to create an on-site clinic to provide team members with enhanced care, including testing for COVID-19. When workers return, they'll undergo a wellness screening before each shift, with continued temperature checks, and be required to wear face masks, the company said, adding that the plant has deep-cleaned and sanitized while it was closed. Where protective barriers can't be added to workstations, Tyson said workers will be required to wear face shields, and the plant has hired social distance monitors who will ensure team members maintain safety precautions. The United Food and Commercial Workers Union has been critical of meat packers, saying they failed to provide workers with enough protective equipment and testing. But Bob Waters, president of UFCW Local 431, said he supported reopening the plant. Tyson has gone above and beyond to keep their employees safe, Waters said in a statement. This pork plant and all the measures they've put in place are an example of how to effectively set up a safe work environment for the employees. Hart said Tyson told community leaders it would begin slaughtering pigs at the plant Thursday and start limited production on Friday. The plant may operate at half its normal production pace for a while, he said. He was told. Tyson said it doubled its bonuses for its frontline workers, including those who are unable to work because of illness or child care issues, and it increased short-term disability coverage to 90% of normal pay until June 30th to encourage employees to stay home when they're sick. And in a related story, coronavirus infects 1,653 Iowa meatpacking workers. More than 1,600 workers at four Iowa meatpacking plants have been infected with the coronavirus, state health officials reported Tuesday. The worst hit factory is the Tyson Pork Processing Plant in Perry, where 730 workers tested positive for the virus, the Iowa Department of Public Health reported. That means that 58% of the workers who were tested at the plant had the virus, Deputy Public Health Director Sarah Reister said at the state's daily news conference about the pandemic. Reister also reported outbreak numbers for two other Tyson meatpacking plants. The plant in Waterloo had 444 workers test positive, which was 17% of those tested. The one in Columbus Junction has 221 workers test positive, which was 26% of those tested. At the Iowa Premium Beef Plant in Tama, 258 workers tested positive, which was 39% of those tested, she said. In addition, Reister announced that 131 workers of the TPI Incorporated wind turbine plant in Newton had tested positive for the virus, which was 13% of those tested. Reister said her department has decided to report publicly when manufacturing plants have more than 10% absenteeism because of outbreaks of the disease. Meatpacking plants have been at the center of several COVID-19 outbreaks around Iowa and the nation this spring, 
Workers in the plant stand close together all day, and critics say the companies did a poor job of protecting them from the virus spread. The companies say they're trying to protect workers while continuing to produce food that Americans rely on. Tyson temporarily closed the Perry plant last month for deep cleaning because of the outbreak. Perry is in Dallas County, which has seen 613 confirmed coronavirus infections and three deaths, according to the state data released on Tuesday. That's fewer infections than Reister reported Tuesday just from the Tyson plant. A department spokeswoman later explained that cases are reported based on the county that each person lives in. Some workers at the Tyson plant in Perry live in other counties, including Polk County, next door. The Tyson packing plant in Waterloo remained shuttered because of the outbreak, although the Columbus Junction plant reopened with limited operations after April 6 closure. The Iowa Premium Beef plant in Tama has also reopened after a closure. Tyson spokesman Gary Mickelson said Tuesday that the company's Perry plant reopened this week after a pause to test workers, clean the facility, and install protective equipment. The health and safety of our team members is our top priority, and we take this responsibility extremely seriously, Mickelson wrote. We are conducting testing of team members and will not hesitate to idle any plant for additional deep cleaning and sanitation. All team members returning to work at our facilities have been tested, and any employee who has tested positive will remain on sick leave until they are released by health officials to return to work. We have implemented enhanced safety protocols to help ensure our efforts meet or exceed local, state, and federal guidelines. Governor Kim Reynolds has repeatedly said the meatpacking companies are making good-faith efforts to protect their workers. She has resisted calls to close the plant, saying they provide crucial food for consumers and markets for farmers. We try to be a partner throughout this entire COVID pandemic, working with our processing plants, because it's a critical infrastructure and they are essential workers, the Republican governor said last week, and we need to make sure that we can keep them up and running to keep the nation's food supply flowing. State Auditor Rob Sand, a Democrat, has called on state authorities to release infection statistics about outbreaks at plants, saying federal patient privacy laws didn't apply to such reports. I am glad to see packing plants outbreak numbers made public, but disappointed it took weeks after I called for it and nine days after we issued an official advisory, he said in a media statement Tuesday. And here's a fact check. Vaccine may not be the end of COVID-19. The debate over when to reopen states amid the coronavirus pandemic has escalated quickly. Frustration with the extended quarantine is mounting on social media, and residents around the country have defied social distancing orders to attend rallies demanding an easing of restrictions. Protesters say the COVID-19 pandemic has slowed enough to justify reopening, given the mounting economic and health impacts. One viral Facebook post, making the case to move toward reopening in Wisconsin, says we need to get used to living in a world with COVID-19. It was posted April 26 by Dr. David Murdoch, a research cardiologist with the Aspirus Health System in Wausau and who was placed on leave after attending an April 19 reopen rally. The consensus medical view is that the virus is here to stay. In other words, this virus cannot be defeated simply by staying inside for a couple of months, wrote Murdoch who said he was observing from the rear of the rally at a safe distance to gather material for a memoir. The world will likely see periodic outbreaks, and we need to accept that and be prepared to deal with COVID long-term. Murdoch makes an array of points in the wide-ranging post, which has been shared more than 2,000 times, but we're especially interested in the claim about the longevity of COVID-19.
Of course, the Safer at Home order from Governor Tony Evers and similar efforts across the country, including guidance from President Donald Trump, is not designed to eradicate the disease. It was implemented to slow the spread so hospitals aren't overwhelmed. Understanding that, we still wanted to examine the underlying claim. COVID-19 has sickened 3 million and killed more than 200,000 globally. Is it really here to stay? We asked the experts. So the claim is, is COVID-19 here to stay? Many experts have said a true return to normalcy likely isn't possible until a vaccine is widely available, which could be a year or more. We're going to probably all need to be used to social distancing for the next 12 to 18 months. John Raymond, CEO of the Medical College of Wisconsin, said during an April 27 online briefing for the Greater Milwaukee Committee. Until hopefully we have an effective vaccine, it's likely we're going to be living with COVID-19. But a vaccine doesn't necessarily mean the end of COVID-19. Absent a vaccine, I think it would quite likely become like a seasonal flu or perhaps like some of the other coronaviruses that we are familiar with, said Bill Hanage associate professor of epidemiology at the Harvard University School of Public Health. It is entirely plausible that this could become part of our regular landscape of respiratory viral infections. The vaccine he references would be theoretically one that is 100% effective and gives lifelong immunity. But vaccines are almost never perfect, notes Barry Bloom, a professor of public health at Harvard. Bloom also expressed concern over the volume of misinformation about COVID-19 vaccinations on social media, which include a host of conspiracy theories about pushing people to vaccinate and concerns about how the vaccines may be dangerous. That could affect willingness to take a vaccine once it's available. The vaccine is only a tool if it's used, Bloom said. Hanage said an array of key unknowns will determine the long-term future of COVID-19 whether people can get reinfected and how severe those reoccurrences would be, how much immunity results from minor infections, how the summer warm-up alters infections based on people's behavior and the reaction of the virus itself. Generally, coronaviruses don't survive as long in warmer weather. Even if the virus does stick around, though, it may not be the threat it is today. If that immunity is not very long-standing, and we have good reason from other coronaviruses, including the original SARS, that it won't be, what type of infections will people have when their immunity starts to wane? The first thing to say is we don't know, but I think it's also plausible to suggest they might be milder. It's worth noting that SARS, a disease caused by a coronavirus that killed 774 during a 2003 outbreak, has been eradicated. But key differences make COVID-19 a more formidable foe. In a March 5th article of the Lancet Medical Journal, Anneli's Wilder-Smith noted COVID-19 can be passed on by those with minor symptoms or none at all. SARS patients generally weren't contagious until they had severe symptoms. And COVID-19 is more easily transmitted and has had more prevalent community spread. The virus remains and we need to learn how to deal with it said Walder Smith, a professor of emerging infectious diseases at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Certainly, lockdown is only a temporary solution whilst we gear up to provide true solutions. Yes, we need to prepare for this reality. Charles Brownus, a chair of epidemiology department at the Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, said eradicating the virus like we did with smallpox will be challenging, to say the least. Ali Khan, Dean of the College of Public Health and Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, said COVID-19 sticking around is likely, but not inevitable. 
Khan noted that some countries already are attempting to eliminate the virus. China, New Zealand, Australia, and Vietnam have all set a goal of not just containment, but elimination. The New York Times reported April 24th that the adjoining nations of Australia and New Zealand are seeing just a handful of new infections each day and closing in on their extraordinary goal. So our ruling says true. Based on what we know now, we rate this claim as true. Experts say it's still too early to know this with complete certainty since much remains unknown about the nature of immunity, and we have no clue how effective a future vaccine may be. But a best guess at this point is that COVID-19 could indeed stick around long term, waxing and waning similar to the seasonal flu. Experts say there's also reason to believe that lingering versions could be less severe, though. DMAX Food Forest Sprouting Promise Des Moines Area Community College, urban campus students, and community members celebrated Earth Week 2020 by tending to and eagerly awaiting fresh produce growing inside the college's food forest and community garden. Last year, the food forest and community garden is on the south side of Building No. 1 on the DMAC urban campus in downtown Des Moines. The food forest is one-half acre that includes 22 fruit and nut trees, four upcycled 3-foot by 16-foot vegetable garden beds, three honeybee hives, a variety of food-producing perennial herbs and shrubs, four native prairie beds, and small learning barn. Food produced in the food forest and garden beds is donated to DMAC Urban Campus students and community members. The DMAC Urban Campus is the most diverse campus in the state with students attending from over 60 countries. DMAC Urban Campus Provost Dr. Ann Houseware Bowen said, Many of our students face social economic hardships in their daily lives. She said a food security survey was distributed to students at the DMAC Urban Campus in 2017, and over half of the respondents identified as food insecure. Jen Riggs, the DMAC Urban Campus Sustainable Coordinator, said funding for the garden has been provided by a variety of sources, including the United Way of Central Iowa, DMAC, the Department of Natural Resources, and the City of Des Moines. Riggs said the food forest is maintained by the DMAC Urban Grounds Crew, DMAC Sustainable Urban Work-Study students, and volunteers. In addition, an employee and two work-study students will oversee all aspects of the food forest and community garden. Riggs said the free food will be distributed from the learning barn and within the Student Life Office several times a week, depending upon the harvest. Melanie Sadajpur, a DMAC Environmental Science Professor and Program Chair and a member of the Sustainable Urban Team, said the garden includes outdoor classroom space, a learning barn, and ample opportunities for students, faculty, staff, and community members to connect with the food forest. The faculty will be encouraged to use the space for teaching, and we will hold regular events, such as lunch and learns, cooking demonstrations, and gardening workshops for students, faculty, staff, and community members. Sajapur is a DMAC environmental science professor and program chair and a member of the Sustainable Urban Team. She said they are also working with Abundant Design Iowa, a local permaculture firm, on a long-term design plan for the food forest. We will soon be planting a large native and edible plant rain garden to mitigate stormwater in the food forest area, Sajpur said. And Scoop the Lighted Zoo Loop returns. The popular Scoop the Lighted Zoo Loop event returns to Blank Park Zoo parking lot May 7th through the 9th. Inspired by area public school teachers and family drive-by parades and some communities returning to an old-fashioned scooping-the-loop, 
Blank Park Zoo has set up lighted displays around the parking lot and invites the public to drive through this Thursday through Saturday night between 8.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. to view the lights at 7401 Southwest 9th Street in Des Moines. We wanted to create an event that allows people to get out of the house but stay in the car and follow social distancing guidelines, said Ann Schmerdla, President and COO of Blank Park Zoo. We are following the guidelines of local and state officials. Admission is free, and Blank Park Zoo is encouraging donations via its website at www.blankparkzoo.com and Facebook channels. Blank Park Zoo is a nonprofit organization and relies on revenue from admissions, memberships, classes, and donations to fund the operations of the zoo. We are continuing our mission of excellent animal care, and your generous donations will help out greatly at this time. And Secretary of State calls for poll workers. Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate announced a new statewide initiative to recruit poll workers for the June 2nd primary. Normally, Iowa poll workers tend to come from age groups that are more vulnerable to COVID-19. This June, Secretary Pate asked younger Iowans to step up and serve. Poll workers are a crucial component of Iowans' elections. They check in voters, make sure they have the correct ballot and answer questions, and in help ensure elections run smoothly in each precinct. Polling locations will be open in all 99 counties on June 2nd. However, many counties are consolidating precincts due to fewer poll workers being available because of the pandemic. This is a call to action for patriotic Iowans. Your state and country need you on June 2nd, Secretary Pate said. We need younger, healthy Iowans to help staff our polling locations to ensure a clean, smooth election process. Also, these are paid positions. You can put a little extra money in your pocket. For more information and to sign up to become a poll worker, you can visit pollworker.iowa.gov. And lastly, a Des Moines man has been arrested on allegations he sexually abused minors. Sean S. Hankey, Jr., age 40, is charged with three counts of third-degree sexual abuse, one count of second-degree sexual abuse, and one count of sexual exploitation, according to a criminal complaint filed by the Des Moines Police. He is accused of sexual contact with two people under the age of 16, court records show. The alleged incidents occurred between 2015 and 2017 in a Des Moines home, the complaint state. Hankey Jr. was arrested Sunday, and his bond was set at $65,000. And that does it for the first hour of the Register on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Up next, we'll give a shout-out to all our listeners who are celebrating a birthday today. I'm your reader, Dennis May. Thanks for listening.